This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz. And this time we have a three-interview program about public art and peacemaking. When George Floyd was killed in police custody in Minneapolis in May of 2020, in a very short time, large public murals and posters of his likeness appeared, not just in Minneapolis, but on walls and posters and banners at marches all over the world. Art has always been a catalyst for social change, but it hasn't always been accessible to everyone. Museums can act as gatekeepers, and artists don't always have the opportunity to engage in constructive dialogue with viewers. Public art, however, offers a democratizing alternative. On this episode of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Sarah Holtz speaks to artists and activists about the power of public art to bridge differences. In 2010, a small town in Texas became the site of a powerful artistic experiment. Heidi Schmalbach was there. She's an arts advocate who studies creative placemaking, the idea that art has the potential to grow and transform a community. To begin the conversation, Heidi explained how she began working at the intersection of art and conflict resolution. One project that I was involved with many years ago, it was probably 10 or 11 years ago now, was focused in a Mart, Texas, M-A-R-T, outside of Waco. And the background in that town um, is that it had always had a 30% or more African-American population. Um, But when you looked at the public uh, history of the town, like, you know, the library, this, this great small town library had probably 25 cases of historical documents. And you had to look really hard to see a black face, <laughs> despite, you know, what the demographics of the town had looked like for a long time. So a professor and now mentor of mine, Paula Gersenblatt, who was a, a, at the time a PhD student and um, instructor in the School of Social Work, but who is also a visual artist. Her husband was from the town, so she, you know, took her kids to see this history and was like, there's something missing here. So she created um, this beautiful archway on a on a piece of property that had a former home that had had a fire and burned down. Um, and she collected artifacts from and photographs from family members but also neighbors and then in that process she was really doing oral histories just a really organic and beautiful process that came out of a of a visual artist with family in a place that grew um, through through the oral history project to um, become a, a focus on a football field that hadn't that had been had not been in use for, I can't remember how many years at the time, but the, the town had, Mart has like a kick-ass football team, you know, and some benevolent benefactor paid for a super fancy stadium to be built, rendering the former football field, you know, it was no longer in use. And in the process of collecting oral history, something that, um, Paula and others who were working on the project continued to hear about was the space and how critical the space had been over the years um, as a gathering place that while there were still power dynamics involved because, you know, at 
points in history, there were segregated games. So one football team, the black football team played one night and the white football team high school played another night. However, on both nights, everybody in the town was there. So this became a focus of like, okay, this is a really important place for this community. And how can we use what I would now call a creative placemaking process to bring people back to the space, to reimagine what they want it to be, this super important site of memory for many generations, and how do we use creative energy to sort of bring, bring something back. Heidi then explained how artists from outside Mart, Texas, engaged the community in making a public art piece. We had an artist in residence from, who was a, a, a Senegalese family, Kanzi, and Musana Ali are, are the names of the artists who came and stayed for two different summers, which was really amazing because there were times when you would see Musana, who had a young baby at the time, a Muslim woman with her riding a bike, like with her baby strapped to her in this very rural Texas town. And people just kind of like were curious, you know, it was, it sparked curiosity and so people started to come to the house that we were staying in and Masana would just work with the garage door open it was essentially we took out ads in the newspaper that were like open invitation to come and either participate or just hang out Um, and this is an artist just embedded who embedded herself in um, the community where she was working and um, eventually we got permission to use the old um, concession stand at the football field to focus on creating a, a community hub and gathering space. And so Masana's work, um, along with all of the community members and young people, students who participated, um, did this incredible mosaic mural on the exterior facade of the old football field. And the process was incredible. Um, it was very, there is something about, in my opinion, about mosaic work that happens with community that is just super inviting because it's, it's, it's a long and challenging process, but it has a kind of a low barrier to entry because you can, you can come in and just do a couple of pieces. You can bring, you know, in Masana's case, she invited people to bring pieces of their grandmother's china, you know, that had broken to be included in this mural that's that's intended to be a reflection of the community over time. In imagining all of the people who came together to create the mural, I was curious how strangers interacted with one another during the creative process. I remember there was a point in time when and I think this is like where the possibility for use in, in conflict situations comes in. There was a time when I looked around at the people who were participating, cracking jokes with each other. And, you know, it was like my, my boyfriend at the time was like sleeve tattoos, me, who is a very liberal and outspoken feminist, next to a woman who has a giant um, anti-abortion sign on her fence. 
who I would not normally go out of my way to engage in conversation with. <laughs> um, a pastor from one of the churches, kids, you know, just like people who would not under, probably under any other circumstances be sharing space with each other for that much time, let alone being engaged in the same activity and just quietly appreciating each other. Um, And we didn't talk about anything political, didn't take the time to discuss our views on abortion or anything else, but it, it kind of leveled the field in some way, right? Like it just set a table that invited a lot of people to come to it and we were making something together. And it's indescribable. I don't, I still don't know actually why I pursued a PhD was like, I don't know what's happening here. I don't know how to explain it exactly, um, but I know that it's important. (laughs) And I can see how this could help, you know, in the chaotic kind of times that we live in. There's something about the process um, that I'm starting to understand more about. And I think like I summarize it as uncovering shared values that that are that get muddied up in with when other things get layered on top of them. Like when we talk about political parties and, you know, just things things get messy, um, but that there are things that we I still believe that we all agree about and they're core to our value system. And I think that I've seen this happen in in real life. And I think that that was one of the, in my recent memory, one of the best models, but it wasn't really a model. It was just organic. You know, it didn't, it wasn't, it, nothing said, it didn't set out to be what it was. Um, but it, there's definitely like lessons in there. What are your areas of research at Tulane? The things that I look at, at, well, through my research are related to creative placemaking and the history of placemaking, the importance of place in general. My background is in urban planning and how creative placemaking as a process can uncover some uh, shared values, particularly around how we use urban space and, and, and what can be understood about those values and how those values might challenge the ways that we currently make decisions about land. So people who participate in open creative placemaking processes where a variety of different people are welcomed into imagining what they would like space to be and are central to the decision making and and sometimes even like physically help create some sort of artistic creative intervention what they're trying to accomplish is not about um, capital gain or kind of extracting Um, extracting from the earth, extracting from other people. So I am interested in what happened to the land, but, but more interested in what is revealed when you unpack what people said that they wanted to do with it. And I just think that that's a rich, rich um, source of information and, and data about the imaginary, the, the public imaginary around what, our communities could look like if at least some of our urban space, our land were taken out of just the private market. And I don't, 
you know, I'm not done with the research yet, so I, I don't have conclusions. But my assumption has been, and so far it's shaking out, that the values that undergird what people say that they want to do are not the same values that undergird capitalism. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And I think there's something, you know, there's something to build on. And I hope that that can be useful in for practitioners, for policymakers and, and folks who are in a position to create these um, types of programs, but also that there's some theory building in here somewhere, you know, about creativity, placemaking, um, and shared values. I've also read that you've described mural making as democratic, and I, I wonder if you could say more about that. Definitely. I mean, it's certainly, like anything, can and cannot be, and there's obviously there are murals that go up all the time that aren't created in a participatory way, and that's totally fine. Um, but I think there's a strong, you know, if you have an interest in using a certain form of art making to bring people together, mural making is a good one. Um, and it's kind of the same reason, you know, mosaic is a form, mosaic is one of my favorite forms of, of muraling, but it's something that can be accomplished with a group of people at its, you know, at its base. Uh, you can, there's just so many ways to include a diversity of voices in in image making and kind of defining um, what the what the image represents, what will ultimately take up a lot of visual space, which you know I think is important to think about is when you're making public art, it's by definition public. Um, and again, like not everything needs to be created with tons of input, but I think it's best practice for some things to be to and particularly when they're going to be in neighborhoods um, to being part of a democratic process. And then you can, kind of how I described in my, like we've done murals through the arts council, lots of them through our young artist movement um, initiative where young people are involved in the process from the beginning. And it's a, you know, there's, there's a, a research component um where you're kind of digging into the the surround, like understanding the history of the surrounding area and talking to residents and trying to understand what matters to them, um, and then obviously a design process and there's there's opportunities for um, various stakeholders to weigh in, um, and that in and of itself is an opportunity for dialogue that doesn't isn't the same thing as having a public meeting. Um, but there's almost always opportunities to bring in people with no experience to put paint on a wall. And that feels really good. It just, it's in, in literally, I think, like empowering because there's a lot of fear involved, uh, I think, for a lot of people who are not, who don't define themselves as artists in art making. Um, one of my colleagues, I love how she describes it. She calls it art scars <laughs> from being, and I think she's like so spot on. Um, when you, you know, like at some point, many people in their childhood were like made to believe that they weren't good at art, whether that happened in dance class or in drawing or, you know, whatever, however it happened. Um, 
she she says that you carry those art scars with you and like overcoming that at any age is kind of triumphant you know and and it's there's like an individual I think a really significant individual benefit that happens when you when you participate in a in a in art making of any kind but especially in this case um in a public piece in the creation of a public piece and then like we've already talked about like the the collective benefit and community building is just so strong and again I think it's like maybe the upside of the art scars is that it puts most people on an even playing field like it kind of just for a minute like dissolves power imbalances (laughs) because you're like well I think I suck at this too so let's overcome that together. I think oh, theater practice is a really great space to do that because everyone feels awkward <laughs> trying to do, trying to act or most people unless you're really good at it. So theater-based practices like in, I've, I've done some work in theater with theater artists in kind of planning spaces. And I was really skeptical about it at first because I feel really awkward participating in like theater exercises but so does everybody else and there's just something like fun and freeing about going through that together that I've watched um and I don't know exactly how to like sustain it for the amount of time you know like but that that minute or so or 30 minutes everybody's on an even playing field and like that opens up really really important spaces for exploration and maybe peacemaking. I don't know. Heidi Schmalbach is an arts advocate who studies creative placemaking as a means to strengthen community. She's executive director of Arts Council New Orleans. You can hear her complete interview with Sarah Holtz at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Find it on the episode page for June 2020 at that website, peacetalksradio.com. You can click on Heidi's picture to hear her complete interview with Sarah. There's also a partial written transcript of her interview at the site as well. We'll take a break, and when we return, we'll continue our focus on public art for peace and social justice. A personal tragedy inspires one artist to transform gun parts into art. Sarah Holtz has that story in our next interview when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the broadcast series and podcast series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. 
Find us online at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our complete audio archive, going back to the year 2002, is right there. It's also online at the Public Radio Exchange, and that's prx.org, prx.org. And you can download all of our shows as podcasts from iTunes. I'm series producer and co-founder Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz, who now speaks with Sung Wei Mo. Now, she's no stranger to seeing her artwork displayed on a massive scale. She's a Taiwanese visual artist who, since moving to San Francisco, has exhibited her art on city buses and on a Boeing 757 airplane. But in 2019, Mo participated in an exhibition that hit quite close to home. The show was called Art for Peace, and it incorporated gun parts from California's buyback program into a series of pieces that confront America's rampant gun violence. For Mo, the creative process was as much therapeutic as it was artistic. And here she explains why to Sarah Holtz. 2017, my ex-boyfriend, he lost his life in gun violence. So I was like really depressed. I cannot do anything for a while until I heard about Robbie Property Foundation. They call for artists. They transform California gun buyback weapons. They select eight different artists in United States and cut off those gun parts from the gun buyback program and giving to artists to create art. And my boyfriend, after he passed away, like two months have five murders in the same community. And Ding, my boyfriend, his sister came from Jamaica. So she stayed with me for a couple of weeks and we went there to pick up those weapons. It was really strange feeling because those weapons in the bucket, each piece, they took someone's life before. So when I'm holding those pieces, I want to create some art and honor those people who pass away because of gun violence. And I want to bring out the awareness of the society. And I want to relieve my personal grief, my all my issues. And also I want to cheer up for someone lost their love, like me. So when I started, first I built a painting piece. It's called Home Sweet Home. And after that piece finished, I feel like I haven't done enough yet. I want to do more. So I want to do a sculptural piece. And that time my piece, the sculptural is an organ, is a music instrument. Because those people who lost their life, when I bring home those gun parts, first I was burning incense, talk to the spirits. So it's kind of like a music instrument. And on the top of the gun barrel with incense because I'm Chinese and we burn incense for people pass away and kind of like send them to the better place so it's more from my personal grief and for people who lost their love in gun violence and give them kind of confidence let, let them feel like they rest in peace now low spirit and we play the music for them to celebrate their life. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about your piece, African Baobab Tree Inside Me. Uh, my African Baobab Tree Inside Me is for, it's honor my boyfriend Ding, his life. 
because he after he passed away, he doesn't have any tombstone, no name on his graveyard now. So I built that piece, and for my personal, I want to feel like he's still around. So it's kind of like relieve my negative thought, and I believe his mom want to see him again every day. So I want to build this piece, and then one day I'm gonna ship him to Jamaica to put on his tomb, like everyone can able to see it, and especially for his mom, his family can remember him how what kind of person he was, because he works really hard and he helps the the community. When he was 18 years old, he was the first person working hard to build the electricity pole. So the whole community have electricity, but now he's not there anymore. So I feel like the government is not only taking the life for one person. He's a really effect to the whole community. And would you say it was a healing process for you, the process of of creating those pieces? Yes, totally. Because first, after his passed away, I couldn't do anything for two months, maybe. And then until I heard about the transform weapon into art. So I started doing the project. I was crying every day when I working on it. I mixed with my tears to execution to make the piece, the first project. And then the second project, I feel like it's a lot of relief myself. So it's like, oh, my issue, my... I, I have the opportunity to using my art to let go some negative feel and thought and hopefully, hopefully can inspire other people. So I would like to teaching other people like how to use it through art to creation to let go some negative feeling. Would you like to continue using like actual materials like you use the, the gun parts? Would you like to do that in the future for, for other kind of like social justice pieces? Yes, I, I keep doing that for many times. So uh, keep doing that. Because I think it's going to be a lifetime mission for me. If not because of Dean passed away, I wouldn't do anything about anti-gun violence. I wouldn't do such powerful things, do some social change. I wouldn't do anything like political or like anti-gun violence, that kind of things. Things happen, we cannot change the past, but we can change the future. And I have the opportunity, I have the skill, I can use my art to have some impact. So I need to do that. Because like, for example, he, he was being killed in Jamaica. And Jamaica, is a, it was a really, really nice place. And because of all those weapons shipping to Jamaica, it's a small island. So whatever weapon there is still going to be there forever. In America, I learned about the gun buyback program, where like people giving second chance opportunity for people want to get better life, put themselves together or like education program to prevent people going to wrong direction. So I learned those things from United States. I hopefully one day I can bring those things to Jamaica to stop the gun violence in Jamaica. A lot of people, they struggling their life. They feel fear. They cannot go outside for their own house at nighttime. So in the future, I think I want to build some public art in Jamaica to help 
hopefully can reduce the gun violence and make public aware or change the government's thought. I I want to convince them don't do that because your life you're young your your life can be better direction. You don't need to do this. Like、uh, even you pick out those weapon, you can destroy the weapon. You can turn it to stop the violence. You don't need to pick out the weapon and then take advantage to the next victim. No, and I think it also it helps start the conversation because these are things that a lot of people don't want to talk about, or maybe they don't know how to talk about it because it's so sensitive and it's so political. But art has that power to kind of push that conversation. Yes.、Mm-hmm. Yes.、Yeah. Totally. Yeah, another really large scale、uh, piece you did obviously was on、uh, United Airlines Boeing seven fifty seven plane, which is pretty unusual. And、um, I know you cite that as your biggest accomplishment so far as an artist. Why is that? Oh, because I came to California and by United Airlines airplane fifteen years ago. I remember that time I was so nervous. Came here to a、uh, unknown future. And pursue my career being an artist. So when I heard about United Airlines, they call for artists to represent California. California for me is my second home, and San Francisco. So I want to do the art to put on the airplane and to show public. And and also because as a female representative, is a is called her art here. The the project United Airlines they never. Ever have the painted airplane before? So when they call for artists to do her art here contest, they want to represent female artists to introduce female artists to the world and give them the biggest canvas ever, like a huge airplane. So I want to do that. I want to put my art here there to represent California. No, and I think it's so cool too that like I mean your work has been. On the side of buses, it's been on an airplane, and it, it's it's reached audiences that aren't necessarily at all engaged with art. You know, you're either you go to museums and you're in that world, or you're not. And I think the fact that your art has been displayed so publicly is very powerful. Thank you, because art should be part of life, and I really enjoy to bring people happiness in their life. I got so many text message from people I don't know. Like there's a guy, uh, he he works for United Airlines. He carried a suitcase to loading the truck in the airplane, and he tells me about oh he he's work he's so happy today because he's loading my airplane and he feel happy just by seeing the design. And I got a text message from a pilot. She says she flew my airplane today, and she was so exciting. And original the airplane is only fly from. East Coast to West Coast, but in fact they fly to international. So I got someone from Dubai <laughs> texting me say, "Oh, I really enjoy seeing your print here." I got people from San Diego, New York. Yeah, so I got a lot of really good feedback from the public and someone I will never reach, I will never know them, and then through the airplane flying around the world, I got a lot of feedback, and I really happy can bring joy to people's life. How does a、uh, public art in the U.S. compare to other places that you've lived, like Taiwan? In America, have lots of public art for different purposes, and I really love that, enjoy that, and they rotate once a while. Like one of my good friend Jodine, he has a he built a giant blue whale, 
in Christiefeld in San Francisco is all from recycled material from the ocean trash. And he built a real size blue whale to from trash become treasure and to have some social impact. And in Taiwan, there's something it's called Rainbow Village. You can Google it. It's an old man. Like whole government want to destroy, uh, uh, diminish the building, the old building, small town. They evacuate everyone. Say everyone have to leave, and we're gonna turn down the whole building, like whole village. But it's like a historical building. So the old man he want to save the village, but even people protest doesn't work. So at midnight, he grab his he bought a lot of paint. He just paint the whole village. After everyone left, the whole town become empty. He just paint everything. He paint the wall, paint the window, paint the whole building, whole house, like whole village. He just full his art, and so rainbow color, kind of like a cartoonish, but with a chi- Chinese style, like a with some message, positive message, and then in the morning when they ready to turn down the building. People shock. They were amazed by the oh my god, look so beautiful art. And then a lot of people came, media came, and then taking photo because the tours are trashing. So the government decided, okay, we want to preserve those buildings. It's like a historical building. It should be keep there, and then become like a tours attraction spot. You know, so one man through his art, he can save whole community, whole village. That's amazing. So I mean, are they more daring over there? Would you say, or that's just sort of like one exception to the rule in Taiwan? Uh, it's shocking, ad, but it's a bring a lot of positive feel because people would never imagine art can be so powerful, can stop diminishing diminishing the whole building, the historical, the history, because it's a early like a thirties or forty. Years ago, the Taiwan building, the whole history will be disappear. So the one person through his art can save that parts of history. I think is amazing. Do you think that art and and your art in particular has potential to promote peacemaking? Totally, because uh, Huang Ai doing Hong Sui Hong, the my first anti gun violence piece. Uh, there was a mom. She started crying in front of my painting. She said her son, his life being taken twenty five years ago, and my image is a father holding the baby. He wants to give it the baby the best environment to grow up. And the baby grow up needs the father to by his side. But in our society, because of gun violence taking so many lives, so. My art is about love, passion, and the family bonding together, the humanity, and surrounding the piece with all the gun part like uh, being destroyed. So it's like a symbolize the society giving us the pressure, but love is something really strong can connect to people, and we want to break it. We want to make it stronger. We want to be better. And make some positive change. So she was crying in front of my painting, and she feel like my art speak out to her, and she feel really emotional, and she feel 
through my art, she feel like relief. Just like I through creation, I feel like relief. She feel it, yeah. So and she is only one sample. So I feel like through my art creation, I can get so many people realize the issue we have in the society, and also because like those gun weapon from United States shipping to all different country. I hopefully one day I can do some public art to stop either the government to do the shooting or to stop people for their own benefit to do the shipping. And because my boyfriend, his life was taken because of robbery. I want to, to present like individual life is more important. It's more valuable than those material possession because people take each other's life just because they want to have some material things but they don't realize that if this person is still alive he can have so many impact to the society hey the government took it's not only one person's life he's taking the whole community whole family's hope because one individual person he could have done so many Different things in his future, but they took their their opportunity. Sung Wei Mo, you can hear the artist's full interview with correspondent Sarah Holtz at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You'll find it on the episode page for our June 2020 episode at that website, peacetalksradio.com. You can click on Sung Wei's picture to hear her interview with Sarah. There's also a partial written transcript of her interview at the site there that you can copy or share. We'll take another break, and when we return, we'll continue our focus on public art for peace and social justice. Sarah Holtz speaks with a graphic novelist who created a superhero series that has helped to support grassroots activism in Puerto Rico. That's ahead when Peace Talks Radio continues. I'm Paul Ingalls, and you're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the podcast and broadcast series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We invite you to our website where this program and all of the programs in our series going back to 2002 can be heard and explored in greater detail. You can hear complete interviews with each guest, read and share partial transcripts of those interviews. You can download audio of the shows, see pictures, and follow other links to get more information about each program's topic. Today, it's Public Art for Peace and Social Justice. And we turn now to our final interview, a Zoom audio conversation between our correspondent, Sarah Holtz, 
and graphic novelist Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. You know, it's not often that a superhero comes out victorious without landing a single punch, but Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez has created an Afro-Puerto Rican superheroine who does exactly that. Her name in the series is Marisol, and the series is called Kenya, adapted from Puerto Rico's original name. Edgardo's graphic novel series spotlights ongoing social justice issues in Puerto Rico. And in the spring of 2020, his series also became the face of Masks for America, which was a volunteer-led effort to provide supplies to healthcare workers during the coronavirus pandemic. Edgardo traces his own inspiration for the series back to his own childhood. As a Puerto Rican growing up in New York City, one of the key things I wanted to create for my character, Marisol La Borinquena, was a familiarity. Borinquena is the name of the island Puerto Rico's national anthem. The original name of the island is Borinquen. It's the original people, the Tainos, who are the indigenous Native Americans of the island, the Native Caribbeans, refer to their island as land of the noble creator. Oftentimes, people outside of the land community don't understand the natural diversity that exists within our family. We're uh, naturally a multiracial people, a mixture of African, um, indigenous, Taino, and European. And even in mainstream media, when you look at representations of people of Latin descent, you don't actually see characters that are Afro-Latin. And when I created a superhero, I wanted to create a character that was truly and apologetically patriotic and truly embraced her heritage and culture as part of her origin and also her visual representation. Have you always been fascinated by superheroes? Ever since I was a child, I was always drawn to narratives around superhero characters. I grew up in a very poverty stricken uh, communities. Uh, by the time I was 18 years old, I had lived in 21 different places. Grew up with a single mother who herself was challenged with mental health issues. Uh, we were raised on a public assistance and comic book art and books were access for me to stories, visual arts. And I would walk the streets of the South Bronx to gather up cans and bottles so that I could exchange them to buy my own comic books. And it was just always something that fascinated me about these characters because they always fought for a better world. They always fought for a better reality for all of us. And very selfless, uh, very sacrificial um, characters. And this was something that truly gravitated towards me because I saw a lot of injustices growing up, a lot of economic injustice, a lot of racial, a lot of domestic violence. And these were issues that were very clear to me that should not be visible, that should not be the reality. So comic books for me were an escapism more so than they were an affirmation of who I wanted to be as a person and who I wanted to grow up to be. And as a young activist in my um, early 20s, I would participate as a community organizer, uh, working with young people and their families around issues around, um, centered around police brutality. And I'd participate in demonstrations or protests. And I'd always find myself at a comic book shop picking up comic books as well. It was just something that truly 
validated what I believed in. I really believed in equity. I really believed in fighting for uh, social justice. So oftentimes people read fantasy and read science fiction and comic books for escapism. And I really looked at it for, for validation more than anything else. And how did you choose um, Marisol's superpowers? Marisol's superpowers come from the Taino deities of, of Puerto Rico. Their uh, mythology centered around a matriarchal um, order. The supreme um, being was uh, a mother goddess, Atabex, and her twin sons, Yukahu and um, Huracan, were representations of the elements. The word hurricane literally comes from the Taino language, Huracan, and the Yukahu was the god of the seas and the mountains. So in creating her powers, I literally looked at these deities, these, this mythology, and tied that into her origin story. Oftentimes in comic books, superhero powers and their origin stories are loosely tied in with um, the Bible, Greek, Roman, Norse mythologies. For Marisol, I wanted to create something that was respective of her and my heritage. Oftentimes, it was always overlooked in mainstream media, and I wanted to find a way to organically incorporate it even into her origin story. So her powers stem from that. And by having her have powers that are centered around nature, around the elements, for me, it was a natural progression to have her become a, a hero that also fights for environmental justice and brings awareness around climate change. Wow, that's great. And how did the series change after Hurricane Maria? Well, I had for some time already been aware of what was being reported by various scientists in Puerto Rico and across the world. Um, there's a scientist in Puerto Rico, Dr. Jose Molenille, who for years had been saying that Puerto Rico was long overdue to be hit by two, one of two natural disasters, either a series of earthquakes or cataclysmic storm that had never been seen before. And given the island's weakened infrastructure, his fears were that the island would not be able to recover fully from this, from these storms. And understanding that, I didn't want to create a, a, a superhero that fell into the same patriarchal storytelling of, of a male character, just solve, finding a solution to an issue by just knocking people out and knocking people through walls. And I wanted to really emulate the women that mentored me and, and the women in my life. And I thought to myself, the solution has to present itself organically. And it can't be just solved by a supervillain battle. And therefore, I removed the whole concept of a supervillain from the narrative and had Marisol deal with a natural disaster. From a storytelling perspective, I actually chose the hurricane over the earthquakes and left it also in a, in a way that she's there to help out, but she didn't save the island from the hurricanes. That book was published in December of 2016, nine months before Hurricane Maria actually hit Puerto Rico. So when the, when the island was hit by this real-world cataclysmic event, Dr. Jose Molina Yi went from becoming Chicken Little claiming that the sky was falling to being an incredibly revered prophet, scientist, so to speak. And my book kind of fell into that space because I was not so much following science fiction as I was following science fact. 
And I applied that to the narrative. So when Hurricane Maria came to Puerto Rico, I found myself within the comic book industry, having the only series that was directly connected to what was happening in Puerto Rico at the time. Not just the fact that a character was ethnically Puerto Rican, but the fact that her origin and story itself took place on the island. And having had that, I was approached by DC Comics. And that conversation developed into the uh, project that will be called um, The Reconstruction, Reminiscing and Rebuilding Puerto Rico, which was our second book. And that would team up our character, who at the time had not even been published for a year, with characters that have been around for 80 years, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, and many others. And this, this book that was close to 200 pages helped us raise close to a quarter of a million dollars and jump-started our philanthropic work. And my wife, Kyung Jun Miranda, started the Laborin Kenya Grants Program. So the character organically found herself to develop into becoming an icon for social justice in the real world, not just by the storylines, but what she was doing in reality. And so our work continues to elevate the discourse around Puerto Rico to really engage people in understanding that for the last 122 years, this island continues to be the world's oldest colony. And it's an opportunity to remind us of our humanity, to remind us of our um, collective responsibility for one another. And oftentimes, when you look at social issues um, affecting our nation, it's usually hard-hit communities, poverty-stricken communities, which oftentimes tend to be overwhelmingly of people of color. And when you look at Puerto Rico, it's literally an island of just brown people, 3.3 million brown people on, on, on this island. So it's, 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 it's organic to see how La Borinquena has become the face of this campaign. My role as part of this organization of, of volunteers is to ensure that once again, when it comes to humanitarian efforts, that Puerto Rico is not overlooked. I guess just to, to back up a little bit, um, can you tell me how Masks for America got started? So Masks for America was started by a group of activists and organizers from across the United States. Uh, Dr. Sanji Suryam, Bob Bland, who is notable for being one of the founders of the Women's March, but also being a fashion designer. Christine Mink, who's actually a school teacher. Not only is this organization of, of volunteers working to fundraise to provide these resources and PPE, personal protective um, equipment, to healthcare workers on the front line across the U.S. and Puerto Rico, but we're also making sure that we step up and speak out when necessary because we're looking at this pandemic in different ways, particularly in the South, where there are many uninsured families and individuals, and this pandemic and this organization's effort to address these issues by providing resources, also providing a discourse, a necessary discourse with a lot of medical professionals. So it's an incredible coalition of grassroots activists from our computers, our devices. We're all connected virtually. And thank goodness that we are because we're able to be proactive. We're able to be engaged with one another. I think back to Hurricane Maria when it hit Puerto Rico. Parts of Puerto Rico were without power for up to eight months. They were completely not only in the darkness because of the lack of electricity, but they were also in the darkness when it came to information. They were completely unaware what the scope of this storm was. 
not only um, in their neighborhoods or in their um, town, but on the entire island. And they were unaware of what was happening internationally, the efforts that were being made to bring resources. Well, at least during this pandemic, even though we're self-quarantined, we're still connected to each other. And so we're doing that. We're contacting vendors. We're contacting institutions. We're in touch with healthcare workers. I'm personally going to pick up the very first shipment when it arrives and make those deliveries to hospitals in New York City. I'm going to oversee the distribution of these um, supplies when they arrive in, in Puerto Rico so that they are distributed to the healthcare professionals that are in dire need of this PPE, personal protective equipment. And that's really what the power of, of masks for, for America is. In the space of this pandemic, we are still connected. And that connectivity that we have is where we can find our superpower because it's really our humanity that's really kind of like finding its way through this bandwidth, this internet, right? And our collective work is really making a significant difference in real time. One of the things I've been very aware of is the power that art has. In this time that we are self-isolating, self-quarantining ourselves, we turn to art. If it's a novel, if it's a television show, if it's painting, if it's reading comics, whatever it may be, we're turning to art to distract us or to find hope or to find inspiration. And in that space of embracing and looking at art and using art and engaging in art, that is in itself where we can also find healing. A lot of what we are going through obviously is being affected by this virus that is affecting us physically. But those of us who are not stricken with this virus are also dealing with psychological issues by being so quarantined. And this is where art comes in. Art is very help helpful for our mental health. Art is very help helpful for our physical well-being. And it provides us that kind of um, stimulation and that type of engagement that we just don't get from an antibiotic, that we just don't get from um, 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 a medical visit. It's transcendental. It's, tra it's transformative. And that's really the power of, of, of where you look at art in a situation like this. Art isn't simply just for being um, appreciated on gallery or museum walls. Art is really necessary in time of crisis because it's also a part of our healing. And in that space, we see that there's also hope and we find a cure to keep ourselves healthy and sane. Definitely. And I, I'm wondering, uh, what advice would you give to a young artist who is working on their artwork, but you know, would maybe like to move it into more of a social justice sphere? What advice would you give them um, for those artists who are, are looking to get into activism? I think that a cause has to speak to an artist at their core for it to be authentic and for it to be sincere. If you're going to truly make an effort to create transformative art that will inspire people to partake in this work, then the cause needs to speak to you either personally or, or in another way. But I, for me, Puerto Rico is something that is part of my identity, is part of my heritage. And for young artists that are trying to tie in their art with social justice, it's important that the art be respective of the movement, the cause, the culture, and the narrative. 
And it takes time to develop um, a story, uh, a series that can truly connect with people in an intersectional way. And this was obviously for us an incredible opportunity that didn't just land on us, but I would honestly say it was my close to 20 years of experience as an activist and as a professional um, artist that gave me the confidence and the resources to say, this is where we need to move. This is the direction we need to proceed in to create this work. Understanding the landscape of popular culture right now that is dominated by storyline and characters centered in science fiction and fantasy and in superhero storytelling, what I saw was there was a significant void for a character of color that was a woman that could speak and address issues around climate change and particularly an underserved, overlooked um, community uh, of, our, of our nation. And that is the Latin um, community. And uh, the advice is, uh, that I would also offer is draw, write regularly. Everyone every day routinely brushes their teeth Drawing and writing should be as routine as that. It's a muscle that needs to be developed and it's a muscle that needs to be worked on regularly. And the more you work on your visual art, the more you work on your storytelling, the more confident you feel and stronger the storyline and the project itself will um, develop to be. You know, it, it strikes me that, you know, you've chosen to... Uh, make work about this character who has superpowers and in the process of doing that and in your philanthropy it's sort of a process of power sharing yeah and that's really a kind of a way of looking at philanthropy and and and, and how it's decolonized so it's 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 really about making philanthropy accessible to all the people and really making it grounded so that when we look at what uh, it means to say collective responsibility is to say that we all have a responsibility to share. You know, just one less coffee cup uh, this week, the money that will go to that could actually go towards making a real significant difference in the lives of so many. Graphic novelist Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez speaking with correspondent Sarah Holtz about his graphic novel series that promoted activism in Puerto Rico and mutual aid efforts in New York City during the coronavirus pandemic. You can hear his entire interview with Sarah, as well as the complete interview with all of our guests on this program at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for the June 2020 episode there. And it's also where you can go to click on a donate button and help this particular project continue into the future with your support. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.